Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and what I want to know is, who the heck is John Quaylen? If his name doesn't ring any bells, and it doesn't ring any bells with me, maybe his face will, or maybe his voice will. Two episodes ago, in reviewing Santa Claus and the Tenth Avenue Kid, I played a clip of Barry Fitzgerald from The Long Voyage Home. Here's that clip again, but a little bit longer. It's a true confession. Confession to what, man? The fifth column. Fifth column? It tells here how a German spy in Paris was writing messages to a woman spy in Switzerland who sent them on to Berlin, Germany. That's nothing. Nothing, is it? Wait till you hear how they done it. To read their messages, you wouldn't suspect anything, see? A lot of mush. The fellows in the war office that opens them thinks they're nothing but love letters, you see? But they have a code. What do you mean, code? What do I mean? I'll tell you what I mean. They have a piece of paper with a lot of little holes cut out in it, and when they put it on top of the letters, they see only the words that tell them what they want to know. And the Frenchmen get beaten a fight all on account of one letter. By him. That's bad. It's a conniving, murdering trick, and that's the truth. Yeah, you can read it for yourself. Oh, no, you keep it. That court, that's no good, by Jammer. That voice, the by Yemeni voice, is John Quaylen, who was born in Canada of Norwegian parents, and as a result was cast often as Scandinavians with Scandinavian accents. But not here in this episode. We'll talk more about John Quaylen a little bit later. But in the meantime, Happy New Year. 1956 will shape up to be an interesting year. Here's some of the things that happened in that year. Morocco declares its independence from France, and Tunisia gains its independence from France. Nikita Khrushchev publicly denounces Joseph Stalin as he ratchets up his de-Stalinization policies. My Fair Lady opens on Broadway. Marty, co-starring Joe Mantell from Guilty Witness, wins the Best Picture Oscar. Elvis Presley gets his first number one hit. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel. Well, I'll be, I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just a lonely he gets four more number one hits before the year is over. I Want You, I Need You, I Love You, Don't Be Cruel, Hound Dog, and Love Me Tender. And somewhere in all of that, he appears for the first time on The Ed Sullivan Show. Grace Kelly marries Prince Rainier of Monaco, breaking Hitchcock's heart. Heavyweight champion Rocky Marciano retires undefeated. Gamal Nasser becomes the president of Egypt and nationalizes the Suez Canal, prompting the Suez Crisis. Marilyn Monroe marries Arthur Miller. The Andrea Doria sinks. Yankees pitcher Don Larson throws a perfect game in the World Series. The Yankees end up defeating the Brooklyn Dodgers in seven games. The Hungarian Revolution is crushed by the Soviet Union. Dwight David Eisenhower is re-elected president. The Montgomery bus boycott results in a Supreme Court decision declaring segregated buses illegal and Alfred Hitchcock directs his remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much. That's all coming up, but for now it's New Year's Day, and here's Hitch. Good evening. 
I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited, but I've just come into possession of a cure for insomnia. It comes in capsule form. For best results, they must be taken internally. We get a close-up of his hand as he very methodically places down on his desk blotter five bullets. They're points up in the air like miniature rocket ships. Here is the handy applicator. He removes a gun, apparently from the same drawer in which Step will keep his gun. It is an amazingly simple device. An idiot can operate it, and indeed many do. These objects play an important part in tonight's tale. It is called a bullet for Baldwin. A word here about the intros and outros. We've already encountered situations where Hitch's words have been edited on the DVDs from what they were in the originals. This according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom. This usually involves cutting references to the commercials. As Grahams Jr. and Wickstrom say in their notes about the episode guide, for many of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes, Hitchcock filmed an alternate version for non-American airings, usually without jabs toward the sponsors. Nowadays, many television stations prefer to cut scenes out of older television programs in order to air more commercials. Known as syndication cuts, the Hitchcock program is no exception, and on many occasions, sections of Hitchcock's hostings were also cut. They also note that a few years after Alfred Hitchcock Presents went off the air, reruns began airing on local stations with a slightly different Hitchcock. Newly filmed introductions were hosted by Hitchcock himself in color. These new hostings were interfaced with the original black and white dramas. Now, seeing as what I have on the DVD for this episode are an intro and an outro that do not include commercial references, my guess is that these are the ones that were filmed for the non-American audiences. The intro is fairly similar to what is included in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. The outro, very different. Here's the intro as written in that book. It opens with Hitchcock holding a 1920-style machine gun, and it goes like this. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited, but I have just come into possession of a cure for indigestion. It comes in capsule form. For best results, they must be taken internally, and here is a handy applicator. It is an amazingly simple device. An idiot can operate it, and indeed many do. Tonight, in addition to our play, we have a surprise for you. Usually at this time, I introduce a commercial. Not so tonight. Well, we'll have that commercial. I just won't introduce it. This on the theory that anything so well-known needs no introduction. So here's A Bullet for Baldwin. First broadcast on January 1st, 1956. Starring John Quaylen. Teleplay by Eustace and Francis Cockrell, story by Joseph Ruskall, and directed by Justice Addis. The episode opens with a street scene, lots of people walking around, a horse-drawn carriage comes by, there's a honky-tonk sounding piano in the background, flashing lights of a city. And superimposed over that are the words San Francisco 1909. If you look carefully, 
at the street signs, you can see that this is the corner of Pacific and Montgomery. And Shanghai Kelly's is there, as is the El Dorado. According to Wikipedia, James Kelly, better known as Shanghai Kelly, was an American crimp of the 19th century who kidnapped men and forced them to work on ships. According to merriamwebster.com, a crimp is exactly that, a person who entraps or forces men into shipping as sailors or into enlisting in an army or navy. Kelly kept a boarding house in San Francisco, variously reported to be on Pacific or Broadway. He also ran a number of bars, including the Boston House at the corner of Davis and Chambers Streets near the waterfront. He also ran a saloon and boarding house at number 33 Pacific between Drum and Davis Streets. These businesses provided Kelly with a steady supply of victims. And this is from the San Francisco Chronicle website. The first and most famous of these gambling resorts was the El Dorado, which opened in spring 1848 at Washington and Kearney. At first, it was merely a 25 by 40 foot tent, but it was soon replaced by a structure made of rough wood boards for which the operators paid the astonishing rent of $40,000 a year. The El Dorado's proprietor could afford it because he was raking in big bucks. The gambling houses lured 49ers not just with their games of chance, but with their decor and atmosphere. In an 1852 report by the New York-based Association for the Suppression of Gambling, an anonymous observer claimed that the gambling saloons of San Francisco are the most splendid in the world, and that the saloons of London, Havana, New York, or New Orleans are far below them in splendor of decoration and magnitude of dealings. None of this has anything to do with the episode, nor does the location or the year, as far as I can tell, except that, for what it's worth, the offices of Baldwin and King are not in the most reputable part of town. Back to that street scene again, as it crossfades to the front of an office door that reads Baldwin, King, and Company Investment Bankers, and then crossfades to a sad-faced man sitting at his desk. The music segueing into the sound of rain. The man looks down into an open desk drawer and we see what he sees, a revolver. The man gets up, goes to a door labeled Nathaniel Baldwin and knocks. Huh? Uh, Mr. Baldwin. Uh, oh, Step, you still here? Where's that paper listing Bonanza's Lead Mountain Holdings? Well, I'm sure it's right there, sir. It, it must be here. I'm sure it couldn't possibly... Yes, here it is, sir. Here ah, it is. Ah, good. <clears throat> I'm glad you didn't lose this one, too. Uh, Mr. Baldwin, won't, uh... Can't you possibly reconsider my... Uh... We've been over that step. I'm sorry, it's final. But, Mr. Baldwin, don't my 21 years of loyal service count for anything? Loyalty is no substitute for accuracy and efficiency. Your mistakes are becoming too frequent. And that paper you lost yesterday was a serious matter. But I found it. It was only a slip in filing, only misplaced. I have no time to discuss it any further, Step. We leave for Denver Monday for the final meeting on the Bonanza issue. I'm not inclined to spend Saturday night arguing with you anymore. You're fired. So we're just in time for a firing. Step leaves the office, 
holding back tears as it rains outside. He cleans his glasses, takes off his sleeve protectors, stands and puts his coat on, sits and puts the sleeve protectors in his drawer where he again sees his gun and he pulls it out. He looks at it, puts it up to his head as if about to commit suicide. But then he comes to a different decision. And he walks into Baldwin's office without knocking this time. Step. Remember Hupka, the poor guy fired by Kalu over the phone in episode seven, Breakdown? This is like Hupka's side of the story if he was fired in person and happened to have a gun in his desk drawer. Now the pie lady says this week's episode introduces a musical theme that we will hear throughout the series. In addition to the oh no you didn't theme and the da-da sting, there is a sort of whimsical cartoony theme that belies the macabre undertone of the episode. Or maybe the macabre undertone belies the whimsical cartoony theme. So having shot and killed Baldwin, Step very methodically, sits and puts on his galoshes, stands and gets his overcoat, takes his hat off the rack, cleans its brim on his sleeve, takes his umbrella. There's an odd close-up at the camera moving to his overhead light, which he turns off, and he exits through a swinging gate, past what looks like a bust of Beethoven, the gate and overhead light both still swinging after his exit. And at the bottom of the stairs, he meets the janitor coming in. Oh, good evening, Mr. Stepp. You working kind of late for Saturday, ain't you? Yes, a little. Mr. Baldwin is still there. He doesn't want to be disturbed. It'll be all right to clean the office on Monday. All right, Mr. Stepp, I will. Uh-oh. Don't open the umbrella on the inside, sir. Don't you know that's bad luck? Oh, no, no, I didn't know that. Step didn't know that it's bad luck to open your umbrella inside. But really, how much more bad luck can he have? The janitor is played by James Adamson, born William James Adamson. His first credited role on IMDb is as a native child in King Kong, which is strange since, if his dates are correct, he was 37 years old when the film was released. But that sort of reflects the lack of respect James Adamson gets in his credits. He has a whole slate of stereotype black roles of the time. He's a railroad porter. In fact, he's nine different variations on porters. He's a red cap three times. He's a black waiter on the train. None of these characters get names. They're just descriptions. He doesn't fare any better here playing the janitor. Again, no name, just the janitor. And he had one more role after this, playing a native in Untamed Mistress, before dying in the same year that we're talking about, 1956, at the age of 59. Here's the pie lady again. At his home, a zaftig lumpy maid is on the phone calling for 416J. Is that 911 in 1909? I don't know what that is. And it seems like a strange combination. But this isn't the maid. This is the landlady. And she's looking for Mr. Step. So maybe she's calling his sister, his office. Who knows? It's the following morning. 
and Step hasn't shown up, but now he does. Why, Mr. Step, whatever happened? You weren't home last night, were you? No, I was riding on the ferry and... On the ferry? Have they, uh, has anyone been here looking for me? No, not a soul. Well, when they come, I'll be in my room. You look so tired, Mr. Step. You should have some warm food. All that rain last night, you'll catch your death of cold. I'm afraid that won't be necessary. It won't be necessary to protect himself from catching his death, because he's going to catch his death anyway, he assumes, having committed a murder. I love Step's dialogue here. Since we're in the know, we know everything he's talking about. We know what he means. He's waiting for the police to come to take him away. But the landlady doesn't know, and everything he says seems innocent enough. We have the privilege of being in on it, but we won't always be in on it throughout this episode. The landlady is played by Kate Drain Lawson. She worked as a costume and scene designer on Broadway in the 1930s, but she also had plenty of film appearances. She's in Little Orphan Annie, Phantom of the Opera, the 1943 Claude Rains one, in which she played a landlady. She's in The Snake Pit and How to Marry a Millionaire. This, like James Adamson before her, is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, and she died in 1977 at the age of 83. It's Saturday night when Step shoots Baldwin. He doesn't come home that night, so it is apparently Sunday morning when he has that conversation with the landlady. Now it's a day later, and Step has, as far as we can tell, spent the entire day and night sleeping. There's a knock on his door. There's a really nice camera shot through the bars of the headboard of his bed, making it look like he's behind bars, which is how he's been thinking since he killed Mr. Baldwin, perhaps dreaming about being behind bars. Who, uh, what is it? You're wanted on the telephone. Telephone? Why would they telephone? Why not? What time is it? It's 10.30. Oh, what day is it? Monday. It's your office, Mr. Step. It's Mr. Baldwin's secretary. Are you coming? Yes, yes, I'm coming. Step goes to the telephone, which is on the wall in the hallway, and answers it. Hello? Mr. Step? Is that you? Me? Yes, this is Mr. Step. This is Miss Wilson. What happened, Mr. Step? Are you all right? Did you oversleep? No, no. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, well, you see, m Mr. Baldwin, I thought... Honestly, you'd better get down here as quickly as you can. Mr. Baldwin has already asked for you twice. He... You say he's asked for me? Yes, and he's very much on edge, you know, over this Bonanza deal. I'll tell him your alarm didn't ring. But if you don't get down here quickly, I don't know what will happen. Mr. Stepp, are you there? Are you coming? Can you get here right away? I, I'll come. So Step is as stupefied as we are. John Quaylen does a great job here. Nodding, his mouth working like a goldfish, as Miss Wilson keeps asking, are you there, are you there? Miss Wilson is played by Ruth Lee, not to be confused with Ruta Lee, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. IMDb lists Ruth Lee as neighbor, 
but there really is no neighbor in this episode. Ruth Lee also played the Reverend McCurdy's wife in Shadow of a Doubt. And if you compare her to Miss Wilson, they are clearly the same person. In one scene, Reverend McCurdy refers to his wife. Now, now, Mr. Oakley, I thought champagne was only for battleships. <laughs> and none for me, oh, thanks, yeah. and none, I'm sure, for my wife. But we hope you'll all forget we're here. But I don't believe she has any lines in the film. In any event, Ruth Lee had a long career, beginning in films in 1932 as the second gossiper in 1920 in the film The Rich Are Always With Us. She's in the Suspicion episode, The Other Side of the Curtain, and her last appearance is in 1975 in an episode of The Jeffersons. Ruth Lee died that same year at the age of 79. Step arrives at the office. There are about seven or eight other employees there, a couple of women, but mostly men about Step's age. Miss Wilson tells Step that not only is Mr. Baldwin okay, that he's rather chipper this morning, and that Mr. King is with him. Step goes through his routine with his hat, umbrella, coat, jacket on the hat rack, goes to a filing cabinet and what looks like a card catalog near Baldwin's door so he can eavesdrop. Mr. King comes out and ushers him into his office. Step tries to pretend that Baldwin might like the file that he's pulled out randomly, but he shoves it back into a cabinet when he passes by. Like almost everything else in this story, it's a fake. I'm afraid you picked rather a bad morning to be late, Step. However, I expect there's still enough time. Although you'll have to take the papers to the train. We won't be coming back here after lunch. Now, I want a complete bonanza file, you understand? We'll be gone several days. I want a list of all their holdings in different locations. Title searches, balance sheets, audits, early correspondence on our proposed contract. In fact, all correspondence. In short, anything that might be... M Mr. King? Yes? There's something very wrong around here. There is, Step? What is it? I don't understand. Well, uh, Mr. Baldwin discharged me Saturday night, and I, uh... I shot him, Mr. King. I killed him. <laughs> Sit down, Step. Now then, you say you shot Mr. Baldwin? Yes, sir. And I killed him. Mr. King, dead. I wasn't surprised when he discharged me. I knew he was angry about that paper I lost. I... I wanted to kill myself. I tried to get him to reconsider, but he wouldn't. And, and then, somehow, I shot him instead. I love the puzzlement there, the incomprehension as to how he went from planning to shoot himself to shooting Mr. Baldwin. And that's just how John Quaylen plays it in that opening scene. It's almost as if somebody else takes over his body at that moment that he's going to kill himself, and he marches in almost robotically to shoot Mr. Baldwin. I also like how Step so readily confesses. He's not planning to get away with this. He feels remorse. He feels he should be punished. He knows it's real. In fact, the only things that end up being real in this episode are the killings. And yet King talks him out of that. 
His words are accentuated by the camera position. When we see King, he is standing above Step, who is sitting down. When we have a shot of Step, he's looking up. When we get a shot of King, we're getting it from Step's point of view. The camera's down below, looking up at King. That makes his words more persuasive. Easy now. We've all been under a strain recently. And a tired, tense mind can work tricks on a man. Sometimes in periods of stress, it's difficult to separate the real from the imaginary. Now, you've suffered an hallucination, but you mustn't let it bother you. But, Mr. King, I don't see how I possibly could have... Now, I wouldn't say anything to Mr. Baldwin if I were you. It's, it's possible he might not understand. But just for your own reassurance, come in. John Quaylen's nonverbal acting continues to excel here. When King mentions seeing Mr. Baldwin, Step's eyes open wide, and then he seems to squint in puzzlement. He doesn't see any way at all that he could actually see Mr. Baldwin. But then Mr. King opens the connecting door between his office and Mr. Baldwin's office, and there's Mr. Baldwin sitting at his desk. Yes, what is it, Walter? Morning, Step. Step says he'll have everything ready and assembled for us in time for the train. In fact, he says he'll even work through his lunch hour if necessary. Isn't that right, Step? Oh, yes, sir. Oh, yes, yes, sir. <laughs> then Mrs. Baldwin comes in, which really seems to clinch it. Morning, Walter. Good morning. Good morning. Can we have lunch, Nathaniel? I came a little early because I wanted to show you a perfectly gorgeous new automobile I saw on the way. Now, my dear, I'm not adjusted to those things yet. I'm not sure they're safe. But we'll certainly have lunch together. I won't see you again until the end of the week, you know. <laughs> Walter, I'll see you at the train. Uh, you'll attend to any further details of preparation, of course. Yes, indeed. Come, my dear. Cheryl Clark plays Mrs. Baldwin, at least according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. IMDb lists her as Miss Wilson, which we know is incorrect. She appears to have been in only four things in her entire career. A handmaiden in 1954's Princess of the Nile, an uncredited bit part in 1954's Naked Alibi, this episode, and Melba in 1957's O oh Men, O oh Women. She may be the Cheryl Clark listed online as a 92-year-old living in Rancho Mirage, California, but let's not bother her to find out. After Mr. and Mrs. Baldwin leave, Mr. King finishes tying the bow on step. Well, there you are. Now, stop worrying about this, and I promise not to say a word to Mr. Baldwin. We'll just assume it never happened, right? Uh, yes, sir. Good. Oh, uh, another thing. I feel perhaps that we are responsible for this. Perhaps we've given you too much to do, which might have contributed to this hallucination. So tomorrow, I want you to hire yourself an assistant. Tell Mr. Edwards that I authorized it. Also, that you're to have a $5 raise. I, uh... Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. King. You don't know how I... Well, my sister, that's she'll be right, so... That's all right. And you'll put the papers in our drawing room on the train? It leaves at 3 o'clock. Yes, sir, I certainly will. Good. You can depend on it, Mr. King. All right. Thank you. King has hooked, step, and reeled him in, but he's not entirely landed yet. He goes back to his desk, surreptitiously takes his gun out of the drawer, opens the chamber, and sees that all the bullets are there. Then he carefully sniffs the barrel, apparently smelling nothing. So the question is, when would it stop smelling? Because the gun actually has been fired. Would King have to switch out the gun 
Is it a different gun? So, satisfied, Steph puts on his sleeve protectors, and the scene fades, fading in again to a Western Union telegram sent to Miss Abigail Wilson of Baldwin King and Company, S. Fran. The telegram also says, Arrive Saturday, 9.30 a.m., stop. Arrange conference, financial reporters, all papers, 11 a.m., that date. And it's signed, Nathaniel Baldwin. The scene shifts to Baldwin's office in a camera angle we haven't seen before from behind Baldwin's desk so that we can see that not only is Baldwin and King there, but there are five reporters, the financial reporters requested in the Western Union telegram. We can also see that there is a painting on the wall of President Chester A. Arthur. In 1909, it had been about 25 years since Arthur had been president, but it's a good look up on that wall. Mr. King sits on the edge of Mr. Baldwin's desk, and he leads the proceedings. Gentlemen, that just about covers everything. And now anyone who cares to is welcome to join us in the toast to Bonanza Mining Common. And those not interested in Bonanza Common, but simply in a drink of good whiskey, well, you're welcome too. <laughs> Excuse me, help yourselves. The knock on the door is Step providing background material that Mr. King requested for the reporters. King takes the material and passes it out. Now this will furnish any data you may need, but I think the important thing is simply the fact that this new issue will be offered to the public through this firm on Monday. Uh, any predictions on its acceptance, Mr. Baldwin? Well, I'm not as free with predictions as I once was. <laughs> Got caught wrong too often, you know. Mr. Baldwin, you aren't planning to retire, are you? Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to retire temporarily, though, this afternoon. Going up to our cabin with Mrs. Baldwin. Just the two of us. <laughs> no telephone. Well, have a good rest, sir. I have to be getting along now. Well, thanks for coming over. Thank you. I'll be leaving, too. All of the reporters leave, so let's take a look at them while we still can. IMDb lists Don McArt's role as Albert. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion lists it as Lobert, which is clearly a typo of Albert, though when I first read it, I thought it was a French name. You know, Laubert. I don't hear anybody referred to as Albert in this episode, and I'm pretty sure that Don McArt is the reporter who says... Uh, any predictions on its acceptance, Mr. Baldwin? This is from Don McArt's obituary in Variety. Born in Cleveland, Donald Craig McArt grew up primarily in Anderson, Indiana, working his way through college with Don McArt's dance band. McArt received a bachelor's degree in business from Indiana University, where he played bass drum in the Marching 100 IU Band and was president of his senior class. He performed on stage with his sister, Jan McArt, for 60 years. After college, McArt worked as a newscaster disc jockey at NBC affiliate WEOA in Evansville, Indiana. After heading to New York, he attracted the attention of stage director George Abbott, who engaged McArt for his first Broadway role in Kiss and Tell. He continued to perform in the Broadway and national companies of Pajama Tops, Barefoot in the Park, The Odd Couple, and There's a Girl in My Soup. Moving to Los Angeles, McArt was soon under contract to Disney. He was featured in The Absent-Minded Professor and The Son of Flubber, followed by various other films, including Too Much with Antonio Banderas and Melanie Griffith. Over the years, McArt also produced and directed at different Hollywood theaters, wrote for radio, and was a television producer at NBC. On TV, he guested on shows including The Addams Family and Adam 12. McArt moved from Los Angeles to Boca Raton, Florida in 1990. 
to star once again in Sister Jan McArt's Miami and Key West theaters in Sugar Babies. And Don McArt died in 2012 at the age of 90. Now, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion lists Bob Patton, David Dwight, and Arthur D. Gilmore as business partners, while IMDb lists them as detective, fireman, and neighbor, respectively. But I think they are three of the reporters, and I think that Bob Patton is this reporter. Mr. Baldwin, you aren't planning to retire, are you? His career ran from 1947 to 1993. He's in the film 12 O'Clock High. He's in two episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, Red Dust and Discovered Heart. He's in many other television shows, including episodes of Checkmate, Craft Suspense Theater, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, T.H.E. Cat, Get Smart, Mr. Ed, Gomer Pyle, Run for Your Life, I Spy, and Bonanza. He next appears in Alfred Hitchcock Presents in episode 16, You Got to Have Luck and he died in 2001 at the age of 76. All I know about David Dwight and Arthur Gilmore is what I can find on IMDb. David Dwight has credits from 1955 to 1958, and he appeared in such shows as Highway Patrol, Science Fiction Theater, The Millionaire, The Man Called X, and Tales of Wells Fargo. Arthur Gilmore's career went from 1953 to 1959, and he is in Ma and Pa Kettle at Waikiki, The Eternal Sea, The Mole People, Gang War, and The FBI Story. He apparently is not the Art Gilmore who was the radio announcer in Rear Window. Men, are you over 40? When you wake up in the morning, do you feel tired and run down? Do you have that listless feeling? Though he does sound a little bit like the guy who says, I'll be leaving too. The radio announcer, Art Gilmore, has over 150 credits on IMDb and died in 2010 at the age of 98. All right, so now that the reporters have left, Mr. King is left alone with the apparent Mr. Baldwin, we get the truth at last. Well, that's it. We've done it. I can't tell you how grateful I am, Mr. Davidson. And I can assure you that Mr. Baldwin is equally so. Well, sir, I enjoyed the role. And I don't think anyone suspected even for an instant, do you? Why, I'm sure of it. After all, when you did that imitation last year of Mr. Baldwin at the Smoke in Los Angeles, I was impressed then by your amazing resemblance. Well, you know, it's lucky we both wear beards. Probably don't look too much alike underneath, but, well, you know, you can shape a beard any way you please. Yes, but this time, this time you used certain little mannerisms and gestures, inflections that nearly fooled me, I tell you. <laughs> well, sir, I like to think I'm a good actor. And, well, you know, after the smoker, I had an hour to study Mr. Baldwin more closely. And, uh, well, I, I just added a few touches. <laughs> well, it was wonderful, anyway. Well, here's the $2,000 as agreed, and, and we're forever in your debt. Why, if word of Mr. Baldwin's stroke had got out, it would have wrecked the Bonanza deal. His name and reputation mean so much. Now, how is Mr. Baldwin, by the way? Have you talked to his wife today? Yes, he's about the same. Resting easy, but still a pretty sick man. She took him up to the cabin last night, so now everything is prepared for your return to Los Angeles. By tomorrow, you can stop being Baldwin and go back to Davidson. Yeah. You know, I'd like to go up to the cabin myself uh, to thank Mr. Baldwin and wish him well in person. Well, I'm afraid that wouldn't be practical. Why? He's there, of course. Of course. And, uh, alive? 
What do you mean? I mean I don't care to be an accessory after the fact to a murder. For $2,000. Mr. Davidson, do you realize what you're implying? <laughs> yeah, I realize perfectly. I suspected all along, but today clinched it. No one would take a sick man up to a lonely cabin. Baldwin didn't suffer a stroke last Saturday. He suffered a murder because you and his wife were... No, no, it wasn't that. I never do a thing like that, never. Even though his wife and I are... It was Step. Step? The file clerk? Yes. I came in right after the shot was fired. At first, I didn't realize what had happened. By the time I did, I realized the consequences, too. Complete ruin. So I hid there until he left, trying to think of some way to, to save things. Then I remembered you and that smoker. Telephoned you in Los Angeles. After that, it was started and I had to keep going. Yeah. You took his body out of here and up to the cabin that same night? Yeah. Mr. Davidson, you said you didn't want to be an accessory for $2,000. I must say, I can't blame you. But I'm sure we can come to more agreeable terms. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can come to terms, all right. I'll just be a silent partner in the firm. Once I'm sure, nothing can go wrong. How can it? Baldwin, you, will be seen driving out of town late this afternoon with Mrs. Baldwin. By the time you get across the bay, it'll be dark. You can leave her, and she can drive on up to the cabin alone. There, all she has to do is throw a lighted match in the doorway, drive on back down the mountain, telephone their doctor to say that Nathaniel's had a stroke. By the time she and the doctor get back to the cabin, everything, all the evidence will be in ashes. What about Step? Well, he's the only possible leak. I'll take care of that tonight. Partner, I think we're going to be all right. Of course, they're not going to be all right. In fact, I'd like to imagine what Mr. Davidson would have to say after the events of this episode are over, because he's really caught in a scheme that has blown up in his face. Anyway, there it all is, all described for you, unfortunately told to you and not shown to you. But now we understand why Mrs. Baldwin is participating in this ruse and why Davidson initially agrees because he's told Mr. Baldwin has had a stroke, not that he's been killed, but then he figures that out for himself. Sebastian Cabot plays Baldwin and Davidson. We'll get to him a little bit later. But I do want to point out that he gets to play two characters with one of those characters impersonating the other character. There are subtle differences between Baldwin and Davidson in the way he speaks when we finally get Davidson as Davidson, which are quite good, I think. So a couple other things from that scene I'd like to point out. First of all, it begins with Mr. King standing and Mr. Davidson, who lights a cigarette, perched on the desk. When King moves and sits in Baldwin's chair, that not only represents that he is taking over the firm, but it puts him in the inferior position to Mr. Davidson just at the time that Mr. Davidson says, You know, I'd like to go up to the cabin myself, uh to thank Mr. Baldwin and wish him well in person. Well, I'm afraid that wouldn't be practical. Why? He's there, of course. Of course. And, uh, alive? When Mr. King stands up again, getting the superior position to Mr. Davidson, 
That's when he talks about the rest of the plan. How can it? Baldwin, you, will be seen driving out of town late this afternoon with Mrs. Baldwin. By the time you get across the bay, it'll be dark. You can leave her, and she can drive on up to the cabin alone. There, all she has to do is throw a lighted match in the doorway, drive on back down the mountain, telephone their doctor to say that Nathaniel's had a stroke. By the time she and the doctor get back to the cabin, everything, all the evidence will be in ashes. What's nice about that bit is that Davidson is still smoking a cigarette, and the smoke goes up past Mr. King as he talks about Baldwin going up in smoke. But it isn't too long after that that Mr. King, figuratively, also goes up in smoke. The problem is Mr. King can't leave well enough alone with Step. So that night, Step is at his desk. He looks at his watch. He goes over and knocks at Baldwin's door because King is now in Baldwin's office becoming Mr. Baldwin because Mr. Davidson is no longer around to be Mr. Baldwin. Now, in the first scene of the episode when Step knocked at the door, Baldwin said, Here, King says, Yes, come in. When Step enters in the original scene, Mr. Baldwin says, oh, Step, you still here? Now, when Step enters, Mr. King says, Oh, Step, come in. Sorry, I forgot you were waiting. Sit down. When Baldwin gets to the point, he says brusquely, You're fired. Mr. King goes about it completely differently. He tries to kill with kindness. The reason I asked you to wait, Step, was because I, I thought it might be, well, a little less uncomfortable for you with the other employees gone. You see, I'm afraid it's necessary to tell you that we won't be able to keep you. Now, this business of hiring yourself an assistant while we were gone and telling Edwards I had authorized it and a salary raise for yourself beside. Oh, now, really, Step. But, Mr. King, you did tell me to do it. You did, don't you remember? Do you? Why, yes. You really do believe that, don't you? I'm sorry, Step, but that settles it. But, Mr. King, I couldn't be wrong. Don't you remember when you told me to hire... I'm sorry, Step. There's nothing to be done about it. i tell you what I am going to do for you, though. You'll receive two weeks extra pay. Now, I think you need a rest and a change of scenery. So we're going to buy you a ticket to St. Louis. Now, you go back there and visit your sister for a while. Rest a bit. You'll be as fit as ever. We'll give you a good recommendation and... No. No, I don't want to go back to St. Louis. I want to stay here and work for Baldwin King. I'm used to it, and... I'm sorry, Step, but there's nothing more to be done about it. Oh, I know you're upset now, but when you think about it, you'll realize it's the thing to do. Your ticket will be waiting for you at the railroad whenever you wish to claim it. There's two problems with this approach. First of all, he plays the hallucination card again, trying to convince Step that he never said he should hire an assistant and get a raise. That's one step too far if you'll excuse the pun. The other problem is, as kind as Mr. King tries to be, Step is wise to it, and he starts to get a little feeling of deja vu. You, you sound just like Mr. Baldwin. That's all, Step, good night. It's all starting to feel like that hallucination he had when he thought he shot Mr. Baldwin. It's even raining outside again. Step leaves the office, he starts to put his coat on, but he has his sleep protector still on, so he takes them off, and opens the drawer where the gun is. The music picks up as soon as he opens the drawer. And it's the same music as earlier on. He takes the gun out of the drawer, 
and marches very matter-of-factly over to Baldwin's office. Step! So, when all is said and done, King says the exact same thing that Baldwin says when he sees Step come in with the gun. And after he is shot, he falls onto the desk to the exact same position that Baldwin fell in. Step returns to his desk and does pretty much the same things he did at the beginning, including rubbing his hat brim on his sleeve. In fact, the shot of him grabbing his umbrella with the camera swinging over to show him turning off the light looks like the exact same shot. And I think even the departure from the office is the exact same shot with the gate swinging and the overhead light swinging a little bit. As we mentioned before, the pie lady says that the music has a whimsical, cartoony theme. And it could just be because, in spite of its macabre subject matter, this episode has been one long joke. And here comes the punchline. Oh, good evening, Mr. Stepp. Here you are working late again. Yes, hello. Mr. Baldwin, anyone up there tonight? Can I go right in? Yes, it's all right. You won't find anyone there. Step opens his umbrella outside this time. No bad luck for him, or at least so he thinks. Let's look at our three lead actors now. Philip Reed plays Mr. King, and he was born Milton Leroy. And his film career began in 1933, where for the next few years, he played in all sorts of mostly forgotten films. In 1936, however, he played Uncas in The Last of the Mohicans, one of many instances where white actors played Native Americans. Uncas is, of course, the title character. He is The Last of the Mohicans. And like in James Fenimore Cooper's novel, Uncas does fall in love with a white woman, but it's played much more subtly in the book than it is in the film. Go on, Uncas. Save yourself. No. Uncas, never leave you. I can't swear to it, but I'm pretty sure Uncas never says that in the book. Philip Reed also played a Native American in Davy Crockett Indian Scout in 1950. He played Red Hawk. But he's probably best known as Steve Wilson, the crusading newspaper editor in four films based on the Big Town radio series. Now, that radio show ran from 1937 to 1952, and the first Steve Wilson on radio was Edward G. Robinson. Reed plays Steve Wilson in Big Town, I Cover Big Town, Big Town Scandal, and Big Town After Dark. His last role appears to be in the Elvis Presley film Harem Scarum, even though he lived for another 30 years after that. He's in three more Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He's next in The Derelicts, episode 19. And Philip Reed died in 1996 at the age of 88. Perhaps the best-known actor in this episode is Sebastian Cabot, who plays Mr. Baldwin and Mr. Davidson. Born Charles Sebastian Thomas Cabot, he left school at the age of 14 to work in a garage. Then he became the chauffeur and valet to British actor Frank Pettengill before becoming an actor himself. Pettengill is possibly best known for his role in the 1940 version of Gaslight that became Angel Street 
in the USA. He played the role that Joseph Cotton played in the American version. Wikipedia says that Sebastian Cabot is in Alfred Hitchcock's Secret Agent, but I can't find evidence for that. According to IMDb, Sebastian Cabot and his Dick Barton Strikes Back co-star Don Stannard were involved in a car crash on July 9, 1949. Stannard was killed instantly. Cabot escaped with only minor injuries. Cabot has a long list of credits. Amongst them, two episodes of Suspicion, Lord Arthur Seville's Crime, and The Way Up to Heaven. He's in George Pal's movie of The Time Machine. He had major roles in two now-forgotten TV series, Checkmate, from 1960 to 62, and The Beachcomber, 1962. He's in the Twilight Zone episode, A Nice Place to Visit, playing the white-haired and white-suited Mr. Pip. Mr. Valentine, do you remember when we met earlier today, I told you I was in a sense your guide, and you said you needed a guide like a hole in the head? Yeah? Well, as a matter of strict fact, you had a hole in the head only a short time before. <laughs> a bullet hole. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. The cops, they... Well, then I must... I must be dead. Mm-hmm. He apparently hosted a series entitled Suspense. Now, this is not the Suspense TV series that was based off of the Suspense radio show, and it's not Craft Suspense Theater. It's apparently a short-lived replacement series that ran from March to June in 1964. I've only been able to track down one episode of this series, and it has no host. Now, the series which gained Sebastian Cabot his greatest fame was Family Affair, in which he played Mr. French, the butler to Brian Keith's Uncle Bill. According to Wikipedia, the series explored the trials of well-to-do engineer and bachelor Bill Davis as he attempted to raise his brother's orphaned children in his luxury New York City apartment. Hi, Frank. Oh, hello, sir. Well, I'm glad you're back, sir. Snowball has arrived. That's what they're calling him, huh? Where'd you get the corral? Oh, it's a baby's playpen, sir. Miss Faversham was kind enough to loan it to me. Well, maybe we're starting a new trend. Sheep ranch on the 27th floor of a Manhattan building. Well, have you arrived at any conclusions, sir? Yep. The kids are going to donate the lamb to the children's zoo. Oh, that may be rather difficult, sir. IMDb says that when he was approached with the script for the pilot of Family Affair, he originally did not want to do it and did not care for the writing or his role. But the money being offered for the pilot was better than decent, so he reluctantly agreed. The series sold, and for the next five seasons, he endeared himself to a generation of viewers as the manservant Giles French. Cabot became bored with the role and the series very early. He confided that both he and Brian Keith were bored to the point of exhaustion for the last two seasons. Here's a clip from an interview that Sebastian Cabot did in Dayton, Ohio, around the time of the cancellation of Family Affair. Sad right now about Family Affair being canceled. Well, I'm not overly happy, and yet I'm not unhappy. You know, it's one of those things, I'm tired of it, but I need the money, so either way it's going to be wrong. But I wouldn't guarantee that it's canceled yet. We live in rumor world, and uh, right now... Uh, I had, first of all, I was told it was picked up, then it was canceled, then it was picked up, 
And now I'm told it's cancelled, and I wouldn't be surprised in three days' time you find we're back on the list. We may not be, or we may be bought up by another network. I know. But this was such a popular show, Sebastian. <clears throat> well, it still is. We're in the um, in the national, that is, you know, in the sophisticated cities, they're too grand for our kind of show. But in the national, we're in the top 20, in the, uh, not top 20, in the middle 20s, say the top 30. We're around, you know, middle 20s. That normally would never have been a reason to cancel us. We have an enormous audience, but uh, let us say the one-eyed god of CBS um, decided somewhere along the line they're going to change their format. And they've dropped many shows that are very oh, popular, yeah. and apparently they know better than the public what they want. At one point, due to illness, it was necessary for him to take a leave of absence from Family Affair. And during that time, the role was taken by our old friend John Williams, who played French's brother, Nigel. Cabot's absence was explained as Giles being summoned to assist the Queen of England. Now, with the success of Family Affair, that allowed Cabot to do other things. He appeared on Hollywood Squares 25 times. He was used as a voice in Disney films, including narrating four Winnie the Pooh movies. And he put out an album entitled Sebastian Cabot Actor, Bob Dylan Poet. Here's a bit of Cabot's versions of It Ain't Me Babe and Like a Rolling Stone. Go away from my window. Leave at your own chosen speed. I'm not the one you want, babe. I ain't the one you need. You say you're looking for someone never weak but always strong to protect you and defend you, whether you're right or wrong. Someone to open each and every door. Uh, it ain't me, babe. Uh, no, 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 it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for, babe. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine. You threw the bums a dime in your prime, didn't you? People call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now, you don't talk so loud. Now, you, you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging for your next meal. How does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home, like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone? In the 70s, he was the host of the short-lived anthology series, Ghost Story. And I should introduce myself. My name is Essex, Winston Essex. But to continue, ghosts somehow seem indigenous to yesteryear, part and parcel of antiquity. Gothic aliens grotesquely incompatible with the nuclear age. Yet, they still exist, like Mansfield House, like me, like you. And he played Chris Kringle in the TV movie version of Miracle on 34th Street. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, but he is in the radio show version of The Lady Vanishes. Sadly, he suffered a stroke in 1977 and died that year at the age of 59. It's time to get back to John Quaylen once again. As I said before, he was born in Canada of Norwegian parents. His grandfather changed the family name from Olesen to Kvalen, 
K-V-A-L-E-N. His father changed his spelling to Q-U-A-L-E-N, but still pronounced it Kavalin. John is the one who changed the pronunciation to Qualen. In 1929, he went to New York and he got his big break as the Swedish janitor in the Elmer Rice play Street Scene. He played that role again in the 1931 film. And then he appeared in John Ford's Aerosmith that same year. That began a long association with John Ford. We've already mentioned The Long Voyage Home, but he's also in The Grapes of Wrath. A man come one day. Back to the matter, Muley. After what them dust has done to the land, the tenant system don't work no more. They don't even break even, much less show a profit. Why, one man and a tractor can handle 12 or 14 of these places. You just pay them a wage and take all the crop. Yeah, but uh, we couldn't do on any less than what our share is now. Well, the children ain't getting enough to eat as it is. And they're so ragged. We'd be ashamed if everybody else's children wasn't the same way. I can't help that. All I know is I got my orders. They told me to tell you to get off, and that's what I'm telling you. You mean get off my own land? Oh, don't go to blaming me. It ain't my fault. Whose fault is it? You know who owns the land, the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company. And who's the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company? It ain't nobody. It's a company. They got a president, ain't they? They got somebody who knows what a shotgun's for, ain't they? Oh, son, it ain't his fault because the bank tells him what to do. All right. Where's the bank? Tulsa. What's the use of picking on him? He ain't nothing but the manager. And he's half crazy himself trying to keep up with his orders from the east. Then who do we shoot? Brother, I don't know. If I did, I'd tell you. I just don't know who's to blame. I'm right here to tell you, mister, there ain't nobody gonna push me off my land. My grandpa took up this land 70 years ago. My pa was born here. We was all born on it. And some of us was killed on it. And some of us died on it. And that's what makes it iron. Being born on it and working on it and dying, dying on it. And not no piece of paper with writing on it. <laughs> The searchers. What is it, Reverend? Well, Lars just said somebody busted in his corral last night and run off his best cows. Yeah, next time I race pigs, by golly. You never hear anyone running off pigs, I bet you. The man who shot Liberty Valance. Oh. Nora, sorry to bust in on you like this. That poor trouble. man. Such a beating. <laughs> this is just simply terrible. By golly, I'm going to get to Marshall. Cheyenne Autumn and Donovan's Reef. He's Earl Williams, the killer, in His Girl Friday. Hello, Operator Hilly Johnson. Will you get me the... Drop that phone. Never mind. You're not going to tell anybody where I am. Put that gun down, Earl. You don't want to shoot me, Earl. I'm your friend, remember? I'm going to write the story on your production for use. Oh, yes. That's right. Production for use. You don't want to hurt your friend? Don't move. Maybe you're my friend and maybe you're not. But don't come any near. You can't trust anybody in this crazy world. Burger in Casablanca. Excuse me, but uh, you look like a couple who are on their way to America. Well? You'll find a market there for this ring. I'm forced to sell it at a great sacrifice. Thank you, but I hardly think. Then perhaps for the lady? 
The ring is quite unique. Oh, yes, I'm very interested. Good. What is your name? Berger. Norwegian, and at your service, sir. Victor. I'll meet you in a few minutes at the bar. No, I don't think we want to buy the ring, but thank you for showing it to us. Such a bargain. But that is your decision? I'm sorry it is. And the deputy sheriff in Anatomy of a Murder. Good to see you, party. How are you feeling? Fine. I guess you come from the soldier, boy. Yeah, so look, you think it'd be all right if we talk in the sheriff's office? Oh, sure, party. Sure, I'd bring him down. And you can't have a Bob Hope movie called I'll Take Sweden without John Quaylen. Luggage? Yeah. Put it right over there. And toot sweet. There you are. Oh, no, no thanks. Enjoy. You'll also find him in I, the Jury, The Sons of Katie Elder, Elmer Gantry, The Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe, North to Alaska, Hellbent for Leather, and My World Dies Screaming. He appears in a lot of dramas on television, including the science fiction theater episode Death at 2 a.m., and the thriller episode, Mr. George. But he also excels in comedy, and he appears in The Partridge Family, The Andy Griffith Show, Green Acres, and The Odd Couple. We don't want to mug you. No, we want to talk to you about your garbage. Well, you're pretty well dressed for garbage men. We're not garbage men. My name is Felix Unger, and this is my friend and roommate, Oscar Madison. How do you do? Well, my name is Max Turner, and this is my friend and roommate, Sam Mitchell. Yeah, nice to know you. Listen, we want to talk to you, fellas. Talk? All right, go ahead. Well, we were wondering... Could we talk someplace else? Do we have to stand here among garbage? I don't like that. What's wrong with garbage? Yeah, what's wrong with garbage? Yeah. That's all right, son. I don't like garbage either. Let's go up to our apartment and talk right this way. As you can see, although he played other parts, if you needed a guy with a Scandinavian accent, John Quaylen was your man. He appears in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents... The next is Shopping for Death, episode 18. And John Quaylen died in 1987 at the age of 87. Now, the teleplay for this episode was written by Francis and Eustace Cockrell. We've talked about Francis before. He wrote, in whole or in part, 18 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His last was episode 10, The Case of Mr. Pelham. His next, also with Eustace, is number 16, You've Got to Have Luck. Eustace was Francis's brother. This is all from EustaceCockrell.com. Eustace Cockrell was best known as a pioneer television writer who wrote many of the early westerns, Have Gun Will Travel, Maverick, etc., while under contract with Warner Brothers. He also wrote scripts for such diverse programs as The Loretta Young Show, The Naked City, I Spy, and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. In 1953, he was nominated for an Academy Award in the documentary category. Prior to the advent of television, however, Eustace published over 100 short stories in pulp magazines such as Blue Book and Argosy, as well as in slick publications like Collier's, Saturday Evening Post, Esquire, and The American Magazine. A native of Warrensburg, Missouri, Eustace Cockrell was once, by his own admission, one of the best pool players in town. It was inevitable, though, he insists, that he end up as a writer. His sister married a writer, his brother was a writer, married another writer, another sister was also a writer. They all told me, Cockrell liked to gag, that it was nice work if you could get it, and I always was gullible. Well, I still think it's nice work, if and when you can get it. 
in Jack Seabrook's interview with Amanda Cockrell, daughter of Francis and Marion Cockrell, she says, My mother also began writing magazine stories when Daddy began to sell them, as did his brother Eustace and his sister Ann Wormser and her husband Richard Wormser. Even my mother's stepfather got into the act with one short story that was adapted for Harold Lloyd. Writing was always their full-time job, and they were working writers their whole lives. Eustace Cockrell only has one other credit on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and that is, as I already said, you got to have luck, along with Francis again. And Eustace Cockrell died in 1972 at the age of 62. Now, the teleplay is based on a story by Joseph Ruskall. He has 12 credits on IMDb, including an episode of the television version of The Big Town, but he was primarily a writer of radio plays. Here's Jack Seabrook from Bare Bones E-Zine. The Radio Gold Index has 29 radio shows with scripts by Ruskall from 1942 to 1956. He also served in World War II, which may be the reason for a gap in credits from early 1943 to late 1945. Ruskall's stories were adapted for several television shows from 1949 to 1957. Two episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents were adapted from radio plays that he wrote. One was The Creeper, and Ruskall sued film producer Edward Small for using that title for a 1948 film. We'll get to The Creeper eventually. Now, Jack goes on to say that the radio play upon which A Bullet for Baldwin is based was called Five Bullets for Baldwin, and no recording of it survives. It was first broadcast on April 16, 1948, on the Mole Mystery Theater. A second performance occurred on August 1, 1949, on Murder by Experts. No copy of the script exists, and since there is no published story to compare to the TV version, any changes made by the Cockrells must be left to conjecture. Murder by Experts, by the way was an anthology series that ran on the radio from 1949 to 1951. It was first hosted by John Dixon Carr, later by Brett Halliday, and it presented, quote, a story of crime and mystery chosen for your approval by one of the world's leading detective writers, end quote. And then there were guest experts, including Cornell Woolridge as William Irish, Craig Rice, and Alfred Hitchcock. As I said, we'll see one of Joseph Ruskell's stories again with The Creeper, Episode 38, Joseph Ruskell died in 1956 at the age of 50. Now, I discussed director Justice Addis in his last episode, which was Salvage, episode number six. And in there, I said he was a solid television director, nothing flashy. But that may be a little hard on him. This episode actually has a number of nice moments. The bars on the bed that make it look like Mr. Stepp may be dreaming of being in jail. The smoke coming up from Mr. Davidson's cigarette as Mr. King talks about the cabin going up in smoke. The way Mr. King falls in the exact same way that Mr. Baldwin fell when killed. And the duplicate shots in the beginning and the end, some of which may be actually the exact same shot. Particularly the shot of the hand taking the umbrella and the camera moving over to show the hand turning off the light. So let's give Justice Addis credit where it's due for this episode. I discussed a little of Justice Addis's life last time, but what I didn't discuss, because I hadn't discovered it, was that Justice Addis had a 22-year relationship with actor Hayden Rourke. Hayden Rourke was best known as Dr. Bellows on the TV show I Dream of Jeannie. 
The relationship ended with Justice Addis's death in 1979 at the age of 62. Okay, so what to make of this episode? Is it just one long shaggy dog story? Is it just one long joke? It has a punchline. We can go back to my favorite question. Is there more than the twist? Well, there's all sorts of lessons in this episode. Don't keep a gun in a drawer in your office desk. Don't mess with the guy who already killed your partner. Don't agree to impersonate somebody you suspect may already be dead. And most importantly, don't fall for the old hallucination bit. But seriously, there is something in there about the cost of manipulating people, which works very well. After all, we root for Step in this episode, not just because he's the main character, but also because he's badly used and he's honest. He may be a killer, but he's really the only honest person we see amongst the main characters. That draws our sympathy. It also sets up the joke. So all in all, as a shaggy dog tale and as a lesson, it works pretty well. In her review, the pie lady gives this episode a B, which I think may be about right. Of course, Hitch has his own view as to what the story is about. That was amusing, wasn't it? But please don't get the idea it was mere entertainment. All our stories attempt to point a little moral, such as crime does not pay. The customer is always right. Early to bed, early to rise. Slow and sure win the race. Virtue is rewarded or punished, depending on the story. I'm not sure what a bullet for Baldwin proved, but you may have your choice of morals I mentioned. One of them is bound to fit. Next time we shall be back with another story. Join us then. You'll recall that early on in this episode, I talked about the intro and outro and how the ones here on my DVD may be the intro and outro created for non-American audiences because they didn't have the references to the commercials. I also said that the intro was fairly similar, but the outro very different. Here's the outro as provided in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. That was amusing, wasn't it? Of course, it was mere entertainment. But our next number, after which I'll be back, should appeal to those intellectuals whose television tastes are more demanding. It is a serious work, more substantial, far deeper, and with a message you can take home and ponder. And then we go to commercial. The Grapes of Wrath, The Long Voyage Home, The Searchers, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, His Girl Friday, Casablanca, Anatomy of a Murder, Twilight Zone Season 1, The Odd Couple Season 1, Shadow of a Doubt, Rear Window, and of course, Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. I'll take Sweden, the Family Affair clip, the interview clip of Sebastian Cabot, the Last of the Mohicans clip, Elvis performing Heartbreak Hotel, and Sebastian Cabot performing It Ain't Me Babe and Like a Rolling Stone are all available online. If you wish to contact me about this episode, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 15, The Big Switch, starring George Matthews and Beverly Michaels. And now here's Hitch 
or rather me reading Hitch's words, to finish up. Now I see where we occasionally repeat a commercial. It is impossible to grasp all the subtleties of thought and nuances of meaning in a single hearing. Perhaps if enough of you write in, we shall be allowed to see that one again. This concludes our show. I have, however, scheduled a return engagement for next week at the same time, when we shall present another story. Good night.